Welcome to another episode of Sanctuary Radio. This is a podcast brought to you by Sanctuary Recovery Centers. Our mission is to break the stigma surrounding addiction to empower others to live addiction-free lives, providing hope to those who suffer from addiction and offer continued care and true healing. So this is another episode and you know my name is Jason. I'm one of the hosts and I'm here with Haley, the other host. Hey, what's up everybody? And so in honor again, you know, we had our last episode on the First Lady of Sanctuary Recovery Centers, Yolanda on, amazing story, powerful message. Absolutely. And so to follow that up, I think it'd only be right if we, you know, had our very own host on for National Women's Month. Well, I appreciate that. And so here we are. And so when we really look at, you know, how we get to be in recovery and work in recovery, we have this journey and this journey along the way, you know, I tell my mom all the time, you know, everything that I've been through personally is like, Mom, I was just building a resume. Exactly. Just building a resume. Building, building that resume. I, I think it's too soon, though. She doesn't think it's funny, but. I think it's funny. I think it's funny. Well, that's because we get it. Yeah, we yeah, get it, right? Exactly. So you've built a resume over the years that gives you the qualifications to have the position you have today and help the many men and women that you have the privilege of playing a part in their recovery and being a part of the big picture here at Sanctuary. But where does your journey start? I think it's important that everyone gets to hear that today. And so you were born in Wickenburg or Glendale? There's no hospital. Yeah, so I was actually born in Glendale, Arizona, because there is no hospital that will let you give birth in Wickenburg. It's a very small community hospital. So, yep, I'm from Wickenburg, um, but born in Glendale. So you're from Wickenburg. So what's that like? So we're talking, what are we talking about? Small town life? Super small town. There's a bar on every corner or a church on every corner. That's how I describe it. There's only two lights in town. Two stoplights. Yep. And I've been through the Taco Bell on the way to Vegas. We have one McDonald's, one Taco Bell, <laughs> and one Safeway. That's it. Yeah. And so you had small town life, but I mean, you rodeo. I did. I did rodeo. So I did get to travel a lot. Um, growing up, we were gone every summer in a motorhome with a truck and you know a truck and trailer, and we were gone. We were just on the road. So. When I first met you, you told me you rodeoed and all that. And, you know, I believed you kind of. But I'll tell you right now, you posted a video of you <laughs> roping the other day. Yep. And it checks out. You're the real deal. That was the first time I had gotten on a horse and roped in 10 years. So it was insane. It was actually really fun. I'm, I'm glad you, to get back at it. And you look like the real deal. So what was that rodeo life really like, though? Like what, when I when I ask you that, what really sticks out to you about rodeoing growing up? Um, I just remember there was a lot of alcohol around, a lot of partying. Um, and just really we lived kind of like a gypsy life. You know, we were never in one place too long. There was a lot of different people in and out of my life. And that's kind of the things that stick out to me. Okay. What's the family dynamic? Because, you know, as we get older, you know, the, our family dynamic, you know, how we were raised, the learned behaviors, the examples, the role models, and all those things that we see as children, we, you know, we exhibit those same characteristics as we get older. But when I, when I ask you, what's the family dynamic like? What were some of the positive things that, you know, happened in your life growing up? Because you had a pretty good childhood growing up. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of positives in my childhood. I remember going to Disneyland every summer. Um, like I said, just rodeoing as a family together was a lot of fun. Um, I remember dance parties uh, when my dad was home. We would make chocolate chip cookies. We'd never get to the cookie part. We would just eat the cookie dough. And then we would have dance parties to Shania Twain with my parents. Oh, Shania Twain. Shania Twain, yeah. yeah. I just remember okay. that. I just 
that just came back to me. So there was a lot of good times growing up. Um, and I don't want to say that there wasn't, but there was a family dynamic like you talked about, yeah. right? So there were times that we didn't get to go as a family, especially when we started school, right? So my mom was home working and my dad was out rodeoing. And um, rodeoing is essentially gambling, right? So you're gambling on yourself. So there was times when my dad would go out there, he'd spend all this money and essentially it was a gamble, right? Because you're not going to win every rodeo. So um, if you don't win, you ain't getting paid. Exactly. And so my mom carried that, right? My mom carried that on her shoulder. So she was working a lot growing up. And that's a lot for the right. siblings. And how many siblings do you have? So I actually have um, two full sisters, my oldest sister, Paige, and my younger sister, Shelby. And then I have uh, two half siblings from my dad. My oldest sister, Brittany, is my uh, oldest half sister. And then um, that was from a high school relationship. And then my my half brother, Marty, we met when we were 12. Okay. So your parents though, I mean, they were involved in the church. You said there's a bar in every corner and there's a there church was, on every yep. corner. So were they at the bar after church or the bar before church or church? So actually it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. Um, my parents, I don't remember them ever drinking, right? It was always friends and fam other family members that were drinking around us. Um, my dad couldn't handle his alcohol. And so they just didn't really drink around us too often. Um, and so they were actually marriage counselors at the church. Um, I remember that, you know, we were always doing church activities. We did youth group. We did like camping up in the Grand Canyon with church, you know, the church family. So um, that's really essentially, you know, church so life. Yeah. And so you have the fellowship of the church. Right, yeah. And so when we talk about many pastor recovery, you know, there's the religious path, there's cognitive right. behavioral therapy, there's 12 step path, but the fellowship, man, it's so important to have that around you. So to have that growing up, I mean, that had to be pretty nice. Yeah, it was. And then, you know, my mom owning a restaurant most of our lives in Wickenburg, uh, 15 years, actually, we had that fellowship of the town as well. You know, we had our regulars that came in. And I remember being, you know, yay high, I guess about two feet tall, you know, serving coffee to these cowboys mm -hmm. that were in there every morning at 5 a.m. getting their coffee before they went out and rode horses or did, did you what get they tips? Did. I didn't No, I just did it oh, for the fun. Yeah. Just for the fun. Yep. Just for the when thrill. I got older, I did. My mom yeah. used to tell us we could work, you know, if we wanted to go to the movies, you could go work for that $20. Okay. So ultimately at some point though, you get introduced to alcohol. Yep. When was that? Um, so I was around 11 years old. Uh, when I first started, I remember getting my first minor in consumption at 11 years old. So the first time you drank, you got arrested. I did, but it wasn't at the party. My dad decided he was going to embarrass me after the cops showed up and gave us tickets. And so I was actually at my mom's restaurant and he had the one of his police friends come in and arrest me and take me downtown. So he thought that maybe he'd scare you straight? Right. It did not work. It didn't work. It just gave me street cred. I don't think Wickenburg. that ever yeah, worked. No, no, it didn't work. Yeah. I use that, uh, you know, I use that to build my ego in town, really. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, ego is a crazy thing. You know, when we talk about ego a lot and, you know, having to smash ego, it's almost impossible to do. Right. And it's a tricky situation to talk about, but it can be used as a motivator. It can. It I've can. been known to do some things. Out of spite. Just out of spite. Same. I'll show you ego, yep. right, as a yep. motivator, but it's a really fine line. And, you know, so it's a really difficult topic to talk about when we talk about ego. So you have your first drink when you're 11 and do you start drinking again right away after that? Or Oh, absolutely. I yeah. fell in love. Right away. Yep. Because you like the effect. I love the effect. So we were actually at a high school party at 11. So um, my best friend from second grade, her brothers were older than us, obviously. And so they always threw high school parties. Her house was the party house. And so I would go spend the night there on the weekends, right? And it was party time. Party time. Yep. 
And so when we're talking about Wickenburg, what is that? Desert party life? Uh, desert party. Bonfire parties? Bon- bonfire parties, tailgating. Trailer parties? <laughs> no, I don't remember. Barn going, parties? No, I don't remember going to oh. barn parties, but oh. we did. There was a wash. It was called Box Canyon. And so you okay. take your, you know, off-roading vehicles, you go out to Box Canyon and you just party in this like desert scenery. So that's, so, so pretty yeah. much once you get into high school, you already know the spots. Exactly. You already know where to go. Yep. You already know how to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. You already know how to do all that those things. That was my things. little sister's job, actually. Because uh, if you have met my little sister, she looks older than me. And so she was always able to use a fake ID and get us alcohol. You look like you're about 19 years I, old. I know. And then I got these braces <laughs> and I just got rubber bands. So I've, it's really embarrassing. But, you know, I'm just trying to make my smile perfect. So, Well, it's working. And so, you know, now we're in high school. Now we're partying all the time. But you, you experience some trauma right. in high school. What happened? So I was just, you know, partying like usual. Um, I had a drink that I remember I took, you know, I finished this drink and I was blackout after that. So essentially I was, you know, date raped. Yeah. And so, it, you know, when we when we think about that, it's like, you know, it's actually very common. It is. It, it happens really a lot, mm-hmm. but we feel alone. Did you feel alone when it happened? I did. Um, I actually told my best friend and she didn't believe me. And that's tough. Yeah. And so you carry that with you for a long time. I did. And that that actually led to my first suicide attempt. And your first suicide attempt mm-hmm. comes from that. You know, we hold these things in, these negative emotions, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the remorse, the right. regret. We feel all these things. And, you know, the drugs and the alcohol become the solution to it because they work. Drugs work. Alcohol right. works. Don't think, don't feel, don't exactly. care. And so until we treat those things, and it takes you a long time to treat the trauma and everything that you've been through in your life, it takes you a long time, just like it did for me, to get to a point where I was able to treat it and remove the obsession to want to change, where take the power away from it, essentially. Well, drugs and alcohol at the time, you know, I I didn't do them for fun. I was using them as a coping skill. Right. And so when we talk about the, you know, the disease concept, if you will, and we talk about, you know, starting out in experimentation, and the second stage is relief. So we immediately start using drugs to relieve emotions, positive emotions to enhance them, negative emotions to not feel them. And then ultimately leads to dependency and chronic and terminal and everything that goes along with that. So that's what happened, though. The the progression of your disease started in high school. It did. What did that look like? So I was drinking at least a handle of Captain every single day. Spice rum or Parabay? Spice rum. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yes, I was nasty. (laughs) Dr. Pepper, sometimes mixed with it, sometimes by itself. Yeah, I was was insane. Um, And then I was bringing water bottles full of vodka into school, getting drunk at school with my friends. Um, I started hanging out with, you know, the wrong crowd. Um, I remember being drunk all the time at school. I don't even know how I graduated, to be honest. Oh, you graduated? I did graduate, yeah. Yeah. What was the GPA? It was very low. <laughs> <laughs> it's still very low. Still... <laughs> my, my IQ is very low. No, I'm just kidding. Um, We're going to weaponize the program. Progress, not perfection. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, actually, um, in high school, my junior year, uh, my family made a decision to send me off to my cousins in Texas, and that allowed me to um, basically better my rodeo game, right? And so I had the opportunity to do well in school, and they are way ahead of us in education that when I actually came back, I only needed two credits to graduate Really, from my junior year. Yeah. We're way behind in the education yeah, scale. We're behind, yeah. yeah. Really behind. So, um, that was a good decision on my parents' part to send me out there. And I really Absolutely. appreciate that. And then, and then you had the opportunity to really just dig into the rodeo lifestyle. Exactly. Right. To, you know, cause it's all about practice. It is all about, it's repetition, yeah. muscle, just muscle so, memory. And that's what recovery is all about. Exactly. And I tell people that all the time, you know, it's like recovery is just like working out. 
I got to hit sets. I got to hit reps. I got to do it. Even when I don't want to go to the gym, I got to go to the gym because like, again, it's just like recovery. The minute I stop doing it, I'm going to lose it. Exactly. So it's the same thing. And uh, sports are like that. Rodeo is like Mm -hmm. that. Life's like that. Really. It's, you know, a bunch of rituals and habits and consistencies that we have to keep in place and ultimately get to the point like you have where you understand how to experience your higher power and spirituality. And in doing so, you introduce those things in your lifestyle because any chance that I get to act like a moron, believe you me, I'm going to try. Yeah, same. <laughs> so I got to design yeah. my day around right. the exactly. least amount of opportunities to do that. Yeah. But ultimately in 2011, you end up going to Oklahoma with your cousin who's actually pretty much your best friend at mm-hmm. the time, right? What happens when you go up there? Yeah. So um, I go up there, you know, we I just graduated high school. Um, I go to Oklahoma. We go up there. We party, right? Party scene. Um, drinking Coors Light, smoking Marlboro Reds. Like that was our summer. I know it's Jason's Marlboro Reds. Yes, those are the cowboy cigarettes. Oh, that's so. right. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So, you didn't you have know. a can of skull in your pocket? Oh, uh, not not then. No. Not then. Okay. No. All right. But I did have a stint with chewing, actually, when I got sober this last time. <laughs> um, most of my childhood, you know, growing up around rodeo, you just put a dip in for fun. So yeah. um, but yeah, so I was up there partying with him and just having a good time and and really it was you know, just time for me to go home. So I ended up coming back to Arizona. Um, and I was actually working at my mom's restaurant at the time as a cook, actually getting paid hourly. Yeah. So I was a line cook for a little while. Um, and I just remember on August, um, 16th, 2011, getting that call that my cousin was in a horrific car accident. And he he passed away Mm -hmm. to, to, um, him and his other friend, uh, Ed were in the car and there was another kid driving. So the, the driver actually survived. And the two other was the driver drunk driving. He wasn't. He got hit by a drunk driver, or just an accident. No, it was just an accident. Wow. Yeah. So there's more trauma. So we got right. suicide attempts. We got being date raped. We got the trauma, right. the negative emotions that come with that. Then you lose a best friend horrifically in an accident. Right. You get a call out of nowhere. It's more negative emotions. And then you decide to go to Oregon to blow off some steam or? Yeah. So my friend Sammy actually came to Arizona. Um, and so we were all partying, smoking weed, hanging out. And she's like, you know, not really in love with Arizona. So she wanted to go back up to Oregon. So we moved up to Portland, Oregon for a couple months. And that's when I started experimenting with harder drugs. So were like you in cocaine, the, were you in the rave scene or yeah, you, we did were, you follow the Grateful Dead around? No, we were definitely in the rave scene. Um, Pacifier rave scene? Uh, you no. don't have gauges, I see. No, I did have yeah. little tiny baby ones. Like okay. I was not really into it, right? I was just into... Cookie Monster pajama pants? <laughs> no. Okay. <All laughs> Listen, right. I was just into the effects that the drugs had made me feel, right? So like I wasn't like an actual like raver or yeah. anything. I was just going to have an experience. I've been to a couple of raves. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to a couple of raves. I never had been to one. So yeah. it was actually a lot of fun, you know, yeah, the lot. light shows, all that stuff. There's a lot going just, on. There is a lot going on. There is a lot going on. But I remember on. the first time taking ecstasy, like it was just like my mind was blown. I was like, you can feel like this. This is crazy. Right. Yeah. Cause you're just all that, all that uh, mm-hmm. rush of dopamine and serotonin. It was just the most amazing feeling in the world. And so that's, you know, that's what drugs and alcohol do. They hijack our brain. Right. right. And so, you know, the neural pathways and transmitters and neurons, it just basically they get hot wired, if you will. And the drugs and the alcohol produce such a mass amount of dopamine to the pleasure center that creates right. euphoria that gets to the point where your brain does not produce it anymore. Right. And so that's why we continue to go out there. Right. Because we're seeking that first high. And that's why we feel so crappy when we're coming down <laughs> because exactly. were, the brain is just, yeah. but the brain's a marvelous thing and it'll heal it itself over a prolonged period of time. You know, post-acute withdrawal could last almost a year, depending on 
the type of drug, Up the frequency. Years, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it ain't no joke, but it will heal itself. It will. And so you end up coming back after a couple months, and then that's where things really kind of take a turn for you. you. Get introduced to meth. Yeah. What was that like? So um, I know we didn't mention this, but um, when I was around 12 or 13 years old, my dad broke his neck, which ended his rodeo career. It was mm. also during the pain pill um, pandemic back in the day where they were handing him out like candy. Um, so he broke his neck. He started his pain pill addiction. Um, and then obviously they realized what was going on. So they pulled that, you know, they're like, okay, well, we have to put regulations in place. Well, um, my sister was already in her active addiction. And so my dad and my sister start using heroin together. Um, and so I kind of wanted to mention that piece, right? Because it, there, it is part of my story. I end up getting high with my sister for the first time okay. after I get back from Oregon. And so based on everything that you've been through now, now we have another solution to the way you feel, right. the way your heart. You yeah. know I mean? And so the drugs and the alcohol just become a temporary Band-Aid that stays, the Band-Aid stays on, you know, because a thing called tolerance and, right. you know, starts to creep in. It just becomes a temporary and, you know, less temporary solution every single time. Right. But things start to go really bad. And, and ultimately you meet your ex-husband who right. you allegedly at the time you believed he saved you he was your savior yeah so i know so we mentioned that i started getting high with my sister um and you know being a sis older sister right you would assume that she would probably be more of a protector role but um she put me in a lot of horrible situations that you know we just won't even go into it just for the sake of you know my family but um so i'm in these horrible situations and you know i start getting high with my dad on heroin um, so I'm using with both my, you know, my family members and he comes in and he, he, he saves me essentially from that situation. He, kind of, he pulls you out of it, right? He pulls you out of that situation and, right. and your, and your dad's sober today, right? He He's got recovery. Today. Yeah. Um, really proud you know, of him actually. He, you know, it's a miracle. Anytime anyone has been through the things that we have and gets to feel the, um, you know, what life's like in recovery and the higher power into our heart perform miracle. It's just a powerful right. thing. Um, so shout out to your dad. Thank you. And, uh, you know, so what at first seemed like he was saving you turns into extreme dysfunction, abuse, right. um, children, yeah. right? What was that like? What can you share about that? Yeah. You know, so relationship? Um, the abuse started right away. Right. And I, I'm not going to say that he was the only one in the beginning that was abusive. I was pretty crazy. Um, when I would get high on meth, right? Like I, no. <laughs> I, I get really angry sometimes. <laughs> um, and so I just remember this one fight we had, uh, he tried to tell me that zucchini and cucumbers are the same thing. And like, I was oh, like, you didn't like that. Oh no. I was like, they are not, <laughs> they don't even taste the same. I mean, any person who's a foodie like me will tell you they're completely two different things. Um, and so I just remember that was the first time that I actually punched him in the face. Um, so in the beginning, you know, it was back and forth, especially when I was using. Um, and then it just got to the point where it was just all the time, right? Like, uh, you know, I got pregnant with my son and I remember him coming home and, and I'm sober at this point, right? Cause I'm pregnant. Um, and I remember him coming home from the bar and just like freaking out on me and, and, you know, just being really abusive. And so it started pretty early on in our relationship. And it got progressively worse. It did, yeah. And yeah. you also had kids. I did. Plural. I I have four now, but I had three with my. <laughs> you had three with him. Yeah. And you previously shared that you know having kids it almost like validated you. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, you know I was being cheated on all the time in this relationship, um, and and so you know you're being cheated on. I'm sober at the time, right? I'm not. I'm, not sober essentially, but I'm not using meth and heroin, right? I'm not mm -hmm. using hard drugs. I'm not drinking every day. 
here's the thing, right? When we really start to think about this, and I know it's tough for you to talk about these things, and I know you get emotional when we speak about these things, and you know the way the kids validate. It's just there's so much going on there, and you know when we look at the trauma and the things that we've been through, um, you know we get a feel today, right? And, and so it's emotional. You know, I, I, I was speaking to a, an individual that's he's a miracle, walking miracle. And, you know, he couldn't even speak last night about the death of his mom. Right. And he's done the work, you know. But ultimately, you know, there's one situation I'd really appreciate you speaking on. I know it's going to be tough for you, but you actually went viral for it. Right. I did go viral. For you it, went yeah. viral on TikTok. I mean, you did some interviews in Australia and some I talk did, shows. Yeah, and all you got over a call it. from Dr. Phil. Yep, I did. Yeah, yeah, it was insane. So why don't you share that story? Yeah. So, um. I don't know why I just got off there, but um, yeah. So with my best friend, um, I found out she was pregnant. She was still using, I was sober at the time and I just wanted to get her off the streets and get her clean. And that's, we've kind of talked about that, right? Yeah. Like you can see that I'm a helper and I always want to help people in sure. my life. Um, and these are the instances you can kind of see where it plays out. Um, so I bring her into my home and um, I take her to all her doctor's appointments. I give the baby her first bath at the hospital. I wear the daddy wristband, right? Like I, I'm there through the whole process. I mean, the whole thing. The whole thing. Um, and find out three days later through hereditary birth defect that's only known um, to my ex-husband's side of the family, which my oldest son has. Um, I find out it's my ex-husband's baby. So hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <clears throat> All right. So you move her into your house. It's your best friend. Mm -hmm. Move her into your house. You're taking care of her. All mm -hmm. the doctor's appointments, the ultrasounds, yeah. you're holding hands, the daddy wrist bad, you wrist, wrist arm badge <laughs> and, and the wristband, excuse me. And, uh, you know, you're holding the baby or did you cut the umbilical cord? Um, I did actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cut the umbilical cord three days later. Cause this is a hereditary birth defect that's on your neck. Right. And what is it exactly? So it's the cartilage in the ear. It doesn't form in the ear. It actually stays in the neck. And it's noticeable. It's very noticeable. My son, we call him our Frankenstein baby yeah, because it's he's noticeable. got two on each side. Yeah. He's the only one. Yeah, yeah, he's the only one. So as soon as you see it, you're sitting there with her, right? Right. And you both see it at the same time? We both see it. We And that's when we, you know, you could just tell the look on her face. Like she was just like threw her head down. She already knew that I knew. And it was just like, all right, well, here we go. Right. The dots got connected. The dots got connected. Um, and so I walk outside because at that point I'm like, I don't know what the hell to do. Um and we have this brand new baby, which is also another crazy story. She was born on the same day that my cousin died. So I had already felt a huge attachment to this life, right? I called her my angel baby because where there's death, there's life. And sure. it was such a beautiful experience for me. And I still am grateful for that experience today. I know that sounds crazy because I think I'm just such a people person too. Like I just sure. love people and I can see the bigger picture. Um, but I'm so grateful for that experience today. And so, you know, I go outside and I'm praying to God, um, and I'm just like, God, what do I do in this situation? Like, I don't even know what to do. And I just remember bigger picture, bigger picture going through my head. And so to me, that meant there's this brand new baby. You guys, you know, you're going to have to put your shit aside essentially yeah. for this new baby. She had nothing to do with it. She was the innocent party involved. And so you actually continue to let her stay with you? I did. Yeah. yeah. And you did. And, you know. We used to make jokes that we were in like a sister wife situation. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Some uh, polygamist yeah. type sister wives. Yeah. So uh, I kind of made light of it. And that's kind of how I got through some of my traumatic experiences with my ex-husband. I used to make jokes like that all the time. Right. And so, you know, we use humor and, you know, we have a bunch of different 
coping skills, exactly. if you will. But at some point, we got to treat them. And eventually, right. you do treat those things. Yeah. So the relationship continues to get worse. The abuse continues to get worse. He, you know, he cheated on you multiple times. You have three kids with him. You had a, fr- a kid with your best friend. And ultimately, there comes a point where you just have a mental breakdown and you go full on Britney Spears. I go full on Britney Spears. So, yeah. he. When you shaved your head. I did. I shaved it off. It's I mean, on my Instagram. It's still there. It's my Where's Waldo. Please find it. Make I mean, a with, on a, it. Like with uh, hair clippers, or are we talking like a big razor? Are we talking no, like... No, I like buzzed it down to like a one, I think is what it was. There was uh-huh. a... Would you get a fade? No, I just did it myself. You yeah. should see it. It's so sad. I have, like these rusty pair of scissors. I'm in the mirror and I like cutting my hair like short and shorter. Oh my God, that and is sad. It is really sad, but I think it's funny today just looking back at it because I remember where I was at and you know, there's so much recovery since that's happened that I can look so we back. We have and to get to it. a point where we can laugh at exactly. it. Exactly. We have yeah. to because that what that shows is you've healed from it, exactly. you've created a new attachment, it doesn't hold power over you anymore. So you go on, you go on full on Britney Spears, you shave the head. And then after that, you leave the relationship. Right. Finally, you Finally. take off. You get out of there. Well, not not without uh, you know crazier moment after the Britney Spears thing. So I I shave my head. Um, I find out he's cheating on me yet again. Right. So it's thirty plus women. Is this the dog this, story? I'm not going to tell the dog oh, story. Okay, right. I don't think that's appropriate no, for the podcast. There, no. Maybe a meeting. Yeah. If you guys hear my story <laughs> in a meeting, I will definitely share that. Um, but yeah, so you know, I I had a. I was just full on crazy, right? I was sober and um, I catch him cheating on me again right after I just had my baby and uh, my last baby with him, Presley. And and I burned all of her shit and, you know, took a baseball bat to all his stuff. Like I was... Oh, you got the Louisville slugger out? Yeah, I was, I was insane at that time. I remember mm-hmm. my grandma coming over thinking I was going to have another suicide attempt. She was so... She was my neighbor at the yeah. time too. So she saw the bonfire go up. Yeah. And, she, yeah so. <laughs> she's like, either she's burning something to the ground or she's burning trash. Exactly. I mean, what's going on over yeah. there? And so, you know, everything ultimately leads up to a point mm-hmm. where you just... The feeling is just too much. And then ultimately we go back to, you know, the only real true, true tool that we actually have is drugs and alcohol. And you go on a full on relapse for about nine months. Now we talk about the disease of addiction being progressive, getting worse, never better. And so when you had the kids and, you know, he wouldn't let you get high, but you were having the kids, you were doing all these things. You hadn't used for a period of time. You relapse after everything that happens. And the, the disease has progressed itself and you started to experience some, some major consequences pretty fast what was that like so again before you share about that i can't stress enough the progression and you know how it gets worse never better every time i've ever relapsed i experience consequences quicker i lose everything quicker and my health declines quicker right so what was that like after the period of um you know sobriety abstinence relief whatever you want to call it because it wasn't truly recovery yet. It wasn't recovery. It wasn't recovery. Yeah. What was it like on that nine-month run? Um, it was, you know, it progressed pretty pretty quickly. Um, within the first three months, I had lost custody of my my three children. Um, I was homeless, living in my car, right? Like, it was just, it was pretty bad. That is pretty bad. Yeah. And it actually was so bad that your drug dealer told you you need to quit. Right, yeah. That's bad. It is pretty bad when they're trying to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, check it out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're like, uh, maybe you should go to treatment. Would you show up, uh, doing the electric slide, the worm and the Dougie at his front door? I think I'm just a lot. I mean, I'm extra anyway. Just imagine me on meth and being around me. Yeah. 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 That's probably, 
probably a bad thing. It is. It is. <laughs> it is very much a bad thing. So ultimately, it becomes the point where during that nine months where you were given the gift of pain, and I call it the gift, right? The mm-hmm. pain and desperation. Right. And I think about, you know, my gift of pain and desperation when I was willing to do something different and to, to you know, put some effort, some vigorous action into recovery. But think about all the times that you felt that pain. You actually maybe had that gift, right? When it was, you know, the trauma you experienced, the deaths and and everything, the abuse and everything that you went through. But the problem for a lot of people is during those periods of time, we're willing to want to change, right? Right. And we have help. People want to help us, but we get relief, not recovery. Right. We mistake it for recovery. Right. So you end up going in uh, 2017, right? You show up at detox. I did. I went to Aurora Detox. And I was there for 10 days. So typically it's seven days. So I'm I was just trying to connect the dots here. I was in a pretty heavy meth psychosis. Oh, they gave yeah. you a couple more days? They gave me a couple extra days. <laughs> yeah, I was not okay. Woo-woo. Yeah, like, yeah, maybe you... been. Yeah. Okay. All right. So threw a few more days on there Exactly. Okay. And then where'd you go from there? So I went to LifeWell. Um, it's a 90-day program here in the Valley for women, uh, especially women who have DCS cases or children because we are allowed to have our children on campus with us. Um, and so that was uh, an opportunity for me that I that I jumped on pretty quickly. That's amazing. Yeah. And it gave you the ability to, you know, before you actually start working a 12 step program, you actually put a lot, a ton of work into, you know, trauma work. Yep. What was that like for you? Yeah. So we just kind of dove into it's kind of more smart recovery. It was smart recovery, uh, trauma work, you know, CBT, DBT, things that we teach yeah. it, you know, um, here at Sanctuary. But um for me, it was really just like my, I called like the the coming to period, right? Like where I was just kind of coming back to normal. Sure. Like I was getting back to uh, a structured, um, you know, schedule and different things and just being able to see my kids regularly was nice. Sure. And so these things are starting to come back into your lifestyle. Right. And that's what we try to provide, um, you know, here, right? So, you know, we, we get them into the 90 day pro- residential program that we have with Sanctuary right. and we're providing them with that structure. We do EMDR therapy. We have a licensed therapist that's on. We got yoga coming in. We have visits where their family can come. We let them Zoom with their kids, right? right? We have a strict schedule. It's a programming facility and they know what to expect and it's consistent at all the times. Right. And what that's doing is it's allowing them to create those habits again in their lives. Right. And so you stay there for 90 days. But you don't, you you know, you follow, it's a step-by-step process, just like we have here, right? You come from detox, we get you into our 90-day program. From the 90-day program, you come to our IOP that has a PHP housing with it, right? So they have an ability to live somewhere. We transport them to our beautiful facility, which we're currently at now. And then we have five sober living houses. So it's a step-by-step process. And you did that the right way. And you took the next next step and you went to another treatment program, right? So I actually stepped down into a halfway house called Mandalay uh, Mandalay Village. Yep, here in Phoenix. And so that's when you get introduced to the 12-step program. That is when I got introduced to the 12-step program. And, and, you know, that's where I really found my true fellowship and my people. And I felt, um, you know, like I belonged somewhere. Um, Actually, my... Uh, roommate at Mandalay was actually in jail with my sister. Oh, really? Yep. And we're actually, she's one of my best friends to this day. Nice. Yeah. And so when, you know, we can sit here and we can go over every single step and talk about all those things, you know, um, but we then, I mean, you know, I'm a big book thumper. You know, know. I'm that big book, dude. (laughs) That's my thing. I love it. It saved my life. I, I know there's many paths to recovery, you know, the program that I facilitate and run. Um, I provide every path because I know there's many paths, right. but what really sticks out to you when you think about, you know, that period of time where you've, you know, you work the steps 
Is there anything specific, the amends process, a fourth step? Is there anything in there that really sticks out to you and you want to share? Yeah, so we can talk about my first fourth step. And we were kind of, I was kind of sharing this with you earlier about, you know, um, my first fourth step was terrible. I'm not going to lie. It was a page front and back. It was very vague. Um, I had resentment, like instead of specific people, it was like women as a whole, men as a whole. Mm. Right. And I that's tough. It, exactly. So I look back at it now and I'm, I'm, you know, thanking my sponsor because she just allowed me to be where I was at in that moment. Right. She didn't pressure me to go back and do a more, you know, vigorous force. Yeah. At the time, that's all I could put together. And sure. She just allowed that for me. Um, it wasn't until later when I started sponsoring women that I actually did a, you know, more in-depth four-step that was about 30 pages long right um but it was just a really cool experience to be able to look back and let you know see that she just let me be where i was at and that's what recovery is all about it's meeting them where they're at along their journey if i have expectations that every single person i sponsor and have the privilege of playing a small part in their recovery and i have these expectations that their step work and their four step that's got to be just the way i did it you know expectations of others are premeditated resentments Um, and that's what peer supports do. And that's what we do working here at Sanctuary. We just meet them where they're at and help them along their way in their journey and provide them the best care that we right. possibly can. Because we can't do the work for them, essentially. Anyway. Yeah, we can't, right? Yeah. If if I could if I could give everybody recovery, I'd right. be like, Oprah, exactly. you get recovery. You get you recovery. Get... <laughs> Here's one, you're sober. I'd you just know? be driving to QTs. <laughs> right. <laughs> and slapping exactly. everyone in the face with recovery. Exactly. But it don't yeah. work that way. And um, so ultimately, you know, a lot of times when I work with guys, they have a couple fears, how they're going to believe in a higher power when they have resentment. So they don't believe they're borderline atheist agnostics. That's usually their first one. Um, But the next thing usually they have fear over is the amends process. So let me ask you this. Is there anything particular that sticks out to you when you think about the amends process when you got to steps eight and nine? Um, yeah. So when I first got sober, my grandpa was in the hospital. And, um, so when I stepped down to that sober living environment, right, I was always at the hospital visiting my grandpa. Um, it finally came time that I was going to make my amends to him while he was, you know, on his deathbed essentially. And so this was one of my favorite amends that I got to make. Um, so I made my amends to my grandpa. Of course he didn't even want to hear it. Right. He was like, it doesn't matter. I love you no matter what, you know, this is just what it is. Um, and so, you know, my living amends to my grandpa, the only thing that he asked me in that moment was just make sure you take care of your grandma. Um, and so to this day, uh, you know, I, when I get off of work, I call my grandma every single day, every day, every single day. And that's what makes the amends, you know, process, right. you know, what makes it different. Right. And the, you know, the only program I ever worked previously was step one. Shit. I can't exactly. land my way out of this anymore. Yeah. Powerless, unmanageable. I've exhausted right. all alibis and I go straight to nine. I'm sorry. Exactly. What makes it different is the constructive action. You know, it does say in the big book that nine times out of 10, the unexpected happens. We're gratified with the results. Um, But it also does say that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. Right. And so when we think about that, the men's process is just the beginning to create momentum for the future followed by action. And you've continued to fulfill that living amends. And I think that's important that everyone really understands that. Um, and then, so from there, after that, after working the steps and going through Mandalay, then you go to a three quarter house. I do. Yeah. You continue to stay. Right. Exactly. So I was in a structured environment for six months. <clears throat> and when I talk to clients all the time, that's my biggest thing is structure. Right. I didn't just go to a 90 day residential treatment program and then start working. You know, I, I, ste- I did a step down process and that's really why I have, you know, four years sober today. Absolutely. And so that is, it's so important. Just like when we, you know, working with the steps, it's just like school. 
You don't right. go from step one, first grade to being a senior, exactly. 12th grade. It don't yep. work that way. It's the same thing with treatment. It's the detox. It's the residential. It's the IOP. It's the halfway house. It's the three quarter house. Then right. it's your own place. We have to do things. You know, we want, I want to have an apartment. I want to have a car. I want to, I want to have all these things right away. But every time I cut corners and do it my way, right. the same results. Well, when I'm in sober living or that, you know, three quarters house, I'm learning how to pay my rent on time, right? I'm learning how to get up. I'm learning how to have a chore. I'm learning how to work and live with others. Like there's all these different things that you have that community, right? So I'm learning all these different things that I normally wouldn't have learned, right? If I didn't have that environment. And you're just putting all these tools in right. your tool bag. Exactly. So now you can come out and be a good mother and exactly. be a good friend and sister and, you know, and, and all those different things. And so ultimately after, you know, you know, being in all the different spots you were at and taking the six months to really figure out who you are, what your purpose is. Um, you, you got with your ex fiance, you actually had another baby. Um, there's a miscarriage that was involved was, in there. Do you yeah. want to share about that at all? Or? Yeah. So that was really hard for me. Um, I was in early sobriety. I think I had about six or seven months sober. Um, when we got pregnant with, you know, that baby, we didn't even know what gender it was. I was so early. It was like eight weeks, I think. Um, it's still tough as a mother, right? You know, I, I know what it's like growing the life in me. So that was really tough on me emotionally. Um, but yeah, so I had the miscarriage and then my grandpa died. Mm. So there was a lot in that little a lot time going frame. on. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on during that period of time. Um, and so ultimately what ends up happening though, is through your whole journey, you find your purpose in life to work in recovery, I to do. support yeah. people, to be of service, to love people that till they can love themselves. Right. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about recovery. And you find your purpose and you start working in recovery in 2018. What was your first recovery job? So I was actually an overnight BHT. Overnight? Yeah. Were you sleeping? No, no, I didn't oh, sleep. Really? Yes. Run back the cameras. I okay. You know what? There was times that I did take naps, but I didn't power like, nap. Yeah, I didn't sleep the whole time. And I always had another staff with me. His name was Roger. He was yeah. 76. 76, I think he was pretty old, but uh he was with me, so it was a pretty good and So you started overnight, yeah. and typically anytime you start working in treatment, you usually gotta pay your dues by pay working overnights. Exactly, especially if you have no experience like I did, so they yeah. took a chance on me, right? Sure. And so during that period of time, you picked up some search, you picked up some education mm -hmm. in the field, you um you picked know, it up pretty quickly. You picked it up pretty quickly yeah. too. And so ultimately you go from uh being which this is just an example of your dedication um you go right into being a day shifts day shift supervisor, supervisor from overnights yeah from overnights right into a supervisor yep. position exactly yep. what was that like it was pretty fun um it was stressful sometimes you know uh it's managing the clients and staff which is uh, that's a lot it is a lot it's <laughs> like sometimes i wanted to rip my hair because you're always on call too but exactly. you're always on call now too i'm with, always on with call. the position that you yeah. have now your phone rings constantly and then ultimately you started to, you know, want to understand other aspects right. and get involved in other parts of the facility and you became a case manager. I did. So I actually kind of, um, being pregnant with my, my now youngest son, Jace, um, was kind of the reason why I got to go to the clinic, right? Because I was working that swing shift three to 11. Um, and it just isn't a responsible shift for a mother. So they right. sent me to the clinic. And so being pregnant actually kind of weaseled my way up a little uh, bit faster oh, than I probably would have. Boost. Yeah, they really didn't want me out of housing. They were, <laughs> you know, fighting me tooth and nail. So. Okay. And so you can see, so now you've been working a program for a prolonged period of right. time. We're talking a couple of years into your recovery. Right. 
And, you know, there's some promises that come with recovery. Right. Um, some miracles start to happen in your life. Some blessings start to rain down upon you. And, you know, when we talk about in step three, making a decision and putting some footwork in, establishing a relationship with God, the it's a 50-50 relationship. You got to do the action steps. Right. That's your 50%. The other 50% is the outcomes through awareness. We start to see that our higher power is starting to take care of the outcomes in our life. Right. And you started to experience some blessing. You got the kids back. Yeah. So in full, Jan custody. full custody, January, 2020, I got my kids back. Of course, 2020 is, you know, ah, that was the same year that COVID hit. Yeah. Um, I had my fourth child also. So I had a brand new baby yeah. in January, 2020. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of things happening for me in that, in that moment. And we always think that, you know, once we get just, everything is going to be great, right? but it's not always the case. Life I was, happens. I was so excited to have my kids back, but there was a reality with that, right? Yeah, there was a, there's a high price to having four kids with you all the time, uh, yeah. right? And I don't think I really understood that until I started and being when, a mother again. And when you work in recovery, you know, anyone who works in the recovery field will tell you we don't do it for the money. Nope. <laughs> no. We don't do it for the money. Sure, we've continued to start right. making money and we're well taken care of here at Sanctuary. But the point is we do it because we have a passion for helping others. Right. But you get the kids back, then COVID hits, you're a full-time student, you got a yep. new baby. Yeah. And ultimately during this period of time, you know, and it had it been going on for years, you developed an eating disorder? Yeah, so my eating disorder started in high school. Um, I know we didn't really touch back on that, but yeah, so I started um, my eating disorder in high school. It's obviously, you know, so much trauma and all these body dysmorphia and things that um, come along with my story. Um, and so I, I had an emotional relapse in January, 2020. Yeah, an emotional relapse. Well, and just in 2020 in general. Yeah, and, and yeah. just it was just it was a lot going on. Right. And, but ultimately, you you knew what you had to do. You had right. to go seek help. You had to find some coping skills. You had to treat the pressing issue because that's what recovery is all about. Right. We identify the problem, solution, problem, solution. And sometimes it takes a while, right? Sure. So I, was, I was active in my eating disorder for you know six or seven months. I was to the point where I was. Um, you know, eating an almond a day, losing eight pounds a week. Um, I looked like an almond a day, an almond a day. You look I, like a uh, Christian Bale from the machinist. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had that like grayish, like scaly skin, you know, like I just wasn't looking good and, and being in recovery and working in the industry, I had a lot of really good support and people behind me. And they're like, listen, they sat yeah. me down at work and they're like, clearly yeah. something's off yeah. you know yeah. we got to treat this thing and you know and in, in my emotional relapse you know i lost my my relationship with my now ex-fiance of three years and there was all these things that you know came with that so my eating disorder really flared up especially when you know i, sure. I lost that relationship um and it, it just had become toxic and so um you know they sat me down at work they're like you need to get some help and and i took suggestions right like i i knew that that's what i needed to do you had the tools and you applied right. it. The power from the knowledge that we gain through any type of group we go to, any type of program we work, the steps, the power from that comes from the application of it. So you knew right. how to apply it. You've been doing it for years. Right. And that's what you did. You applied it. You treated it. You got back on your feet. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately you got back into uh, working in recovery. And then you met Joey, the owner of Sanctuary. Yeah. So I actually met Joey at this other facility that I had been working at for almost three years. And... Um, and so, you know, I, I went to eating disorder treatment. I got back from that and I realized, you know, I just, the, where I was working was just an unhealthy work environment that, you know, the people that I worked with are great. Don't get me wrong, but obviously we, you know, you've had workplace trauma, you understand sure. what I'm talking about. So I just realized that I needed a change of scenery and, and people. And so, you know, I reached out to Joey and I'm like, can you please help me? I, you know, I would really like to come work for sanctuary. And it just so happened that the admission coordinator mm -hmm. job had opened up. 
like quick quick yeah like you had that job within two days of uh, her being gone yeah pretty much and there you were yep and you showed up at the residential yeah i remember that and so now here you know you know being with sanctuary now for a prolonged period of time you know you know you do a whole bunch of things right I mean, you wear a bunch of hats, right? You're wearing a hat right I'm now. I'm starting. I know. I am wearing, wearing a hat right, right now. I didn't get. Right I didn't do my hair this morning, everyone. Cowgirl type. Yeah, I have the Facebook radio today. <laughs> 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 so yeah, so um, you know, I'm starting to be able to take some of these hats off as we grow, which is such a blessing because I, you know, the people who were here from the beginning, you know, we we really did do a, team, a lot. It was a team it was, effort. It was a team effort. So it's nice to be able to wear just one. So hat you're today. you're the outreach coordinator. You do you know you help people get into treatment. Right. I mean, I'll, I mean, we do the events once a month. Here we just had ours this Wednesday. Business development. Yeah. Was, shout out to Alan Weaver. Yep, it was right? a beautiful and, event. And um, you know, check out our TikTok. Check out all of our right. social media platforms. You know, we're always constantly posting and sharing our experience right. and working with you know, other treatment facilities in the community because we're a team. We are. Um, so you do business development, you yep. do community outreach, you help people get into treatment because right. we're not the type where we're full, which we're pretty much always full. That's the high demand that's out there. Right. We don't just turn people away. And no, you know that I, you know that I call you all the time, ev all pretty the time. much every day. Yeah. What yeah. insurance, what place takes this? Yeah. What's the best detox? Who do I You're call? You're not the only one. You know, there's a lot of people um, I've had, you know, people around the state, family members or old longtime friends that hear what I'm doing and they reach out to me and they're like, Hey, can you help so-and-so? Or, Hey, can you help me with this? And you know, you realize, you know, all of yeah, them. Yeah, I do. You yeah. are really good. At yeah. That. You know, all of them. Um, and so here we are where we got this expansion going on here with the IOPs now open, the right. other facilities were in the works and the growth and being here from the beginning and, you know, now bringing in a bigger team and allowing us to stick to our specific skill sets our that, roles, right? yeah, and it's nice, man. And it's just so exciting for the future. And so I hope that everyone that heard this today gets to know you better. And they're, I mean, you're the Hopefully. host, you're the host. So yeah. they're going to get to know us exactly pretty well. Um, you know, maybe I'll eventually do like a PG 13 speaker meeting. I, I don't know, know. I would love to hear your story <laughs> on here, <laughs> but we'll see. Right. Um, but you know, I just really think that it was an amazing opportunity and an honor of National, um, you know, Women's Month to, to have right. you on. Um, and, and I appreciate you guys letting me share my story here. Yeah. And so find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It's all under at Sanctuary Recovery Centers. Sanctuary Recovery Centers. Check it out. Can't miss that Phoenix bird. Yeah. It's on, yeah. You yeah. can't miss it. Yeah. And so we just encourage you guys to be a part of, come come join us, you know, and just be a part of that true healing that sanctuaries out there provide into the community. So tune in for the next episode. See you next time. <laughs>